Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Exclusive means that if I sign an exclusive contract with an IP holder, uh, we, have the, we have the sole ability to create items. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn the key deal terms in a licensing contract, why shipping terms can trip up a licensing deal, and why and how to create systems and infrastructure for your business. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Fetter from Sanshi. Sanshi makes premium merchandise for video games, anime, and more, and was started in 2012 and based out of Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about the business. What, what are some of the more popular merchandise that, that you guys sell? Um, it really varies. Um, basically, especially with gaming merchandise, what will sell the best is kind of what, what is most recent out. Um, so... A lot of the time, it's going to be things like plushes. Um, those are kind of one of those items that, no matter how old the game is, or the honestly the TV show or anything like that, those always uh, sell really well. Um, anything that's kind of a, an easy item to um, to create, so like uh, pins and buttons and stuff like that, those are they obviously go very well because they're a um, uh, a low uh, low cost item to both create and produce, and then also for people to just pick up on a whim. Um, so we we see, I mean, we see a great deal of, of kind of different things succeeding, especially depending on what uh, what the property is. So like video games, you'll see certain items like plushes or pins and stuff selling better. And then in, in anime, you might see things like posters or other items that aren't necessarily easily obtained selling well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys have a ton of items or a ton of products, different types of products on here. I definitely want to go into more details about how you manage the catalog. But before we get there, we were just talking off air a bit about when you joined and how the company began. I would love to hear that story again on air about how the business, you know, quote unquote business got started back in, I guess, 2012. Yeah. Um, so the business actually... Um started with three friends who decided that uh, they kind of wanted to make their passion uh, for video games and other items be a, a real thing, like a tangible thing that other people could also enjoy. So they had uh, started it by just making some t-shirt designs and some posters. And when that started selling just incredibly well, because um, that was really about when conventions kind of started being a huge thing, where you see like that kind of spike where... Um, conventions started popping up more frequently in uh, different states. Um, so they kind of hit it right at the right right point, the, the sweet point of when conventions were spiking, and uh, they managed to get in and, and got just extremely popular. Um, most of the people who started it have uh, either left or are no longer working with the company. Um, one of the guys who uh, started it originally now works for Faku and is on like Forbes I think like top 100 people at some point, um, and then a couple of the other guys do some other stuff. So it's it's really cool. Um, so that that's kind of how the business got started. Is basically they they made a thing at the right time, and it was a it was a high quality item that a lot of people responded very well to, and uh, and it just kind of took off and mm-hmm. kind of caught up from there. Awesome. So when you when when did you join the company, and what was your role once you stepped into the company? 
Uh, so I joined the company in 2014, early in 2014. Um, I was originally hired to be the art director's kind of personal assistant. Um, at that point in time, the other co-owner of the company uh, was looking to pursue other things and kind of wanted to, to see what else was out there. So I ended up taking on a lot more of his duties. Um, and then he ended up uh, finding kind of what he wanted to do. So I took over the lion's share of, of everything else. And uh, so now I, I kind of do a little bit of everything. I do the general operations of the company. Um, I do a lot of the biz stuff stuff. So like talking to clients and arranging meetings and flying out to see people and all that. Um, I oversee a lot of the stuff like with conventions and stuff. Um, we have a, a just a really great team that uh, I get to work with and they handle, they handle all the stuff like, you know, this, the setting up of conventions and such, and then report back to me, which is really nice because they're so much more organized. <laughs> um, and then, uh, I think I probably took over basically everything in 2016, and then it's just been a matter of kind of uh, readjusting my schedule and taking over a little bit more with like the art and creation of products and kind of everything under the sun, basically. Yeah, I would love to hear more about about this transition because I think that there are entrepreneurs that are kind of, I guess, on the other side that are looking to bring on someone that can essentially operate, bring on an operator that, that is in charge of running the business. You know, a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs get into or want to start businesses because they have ideas that they want to pursue, uh, but then they, they, you know, they come with ideas and then they just need someone to help them execute on it. Would you say that that's kind of your, your role or your job is to turn like these, I guess, dreams or at least originally you turn these dreams and ideas into reality? Yeah. Um, it's actually kind of an interesting way that I mesh with the company. So, uh, obviously with the, the way the company kind of started, um, a lot of the stuff wasn't kind of, uh, I don't want to say solidified because everything was done, but there was just a lot of things where none of them had come from a corporate background. Um, and so it was kind of an interesting thing where I, I'm used to corporate-y things. I've, I've worked at huge companies. I've worked at small companies. Um, and so I've done all the bureaucratic stuff. And so coming into this, it was super interesting uh, to kind of build all of it up from the ground up. Um, they had some processes in place and some things, but since none of them had that that background in like, okay, here's, here's all the things we need to do for like the hiring process. And, you know, if we're going to add employees who aren't, you know, the, the three guys who started it, this is the process we have to go through. Um, here is like general reporting things that we would need to do. All of these little things that didn't matter when uh, they were kind of operating out of their basement and, and just for fun and, and just kind of doing it as a side gig. But when it started becoming a real thing, they needed someone to kind of come in and say, okay, we're not going to make it very corporate but we do need to have, you know, rules and regulations and be able to, you know, have a definable process when we create things uh, and, you know, just accountability in general and, and paperwork and all of that good stuff. Um, so since I was used to that, it was, it was really nice to be able to come in and kind of start clean and basically say, okay, well, this is what I've seen that's worked. Here's what I've seen that hasn't. We're going to test, you know, we'll test way A and if it doesn't work, we'll tweak and move on to this. And so it's, it's just been very nice to be able to kind of have the hands-on approach and build everything from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And how did they find you or how did you find them? Um, so I had a friend who was working them for them as a freelance artist in LA when they were based out of Boston. And, uh, I had been working at a, a marketing firm at the time. And my friend who was their artist was like, Hey, you should, you know, just apply. They're looking for a personal assistant. Obviously that's not really what you want to do, but I think you could probably move up because, you know, you have, you have a lot of background that the company doesn't have and they could probably use. Um, so I applied, <laughs> I think I applied on a Tuesday and they said, Hey, uh, we'll fly you out this weekend. If you want to just come out for an interview. Um, 
and apparently they basically nixed all of the uh, the other resumes and stuff that they had gotten, met me, and said, when can you move? And so I basically a month later drove across the country from Portland, Oregon to move to Boston and uh, facilitated my, my big thing. The big reason they hired me at that point was to uh, facilitate the move from Boston to uh, Seattle, which is where we are now. Awesome. So when you stepped in, in into the, the the business itself, what were, I guess, the main improvements that you knew you wanted to make immediately? Oh, gosh. Um, well, first off, they had been in the office for a very short time. And since uh, the, the company at that time was just three of the guys, um, and they didn't really need to be in the office that much since they all, all, all of the people who were involved in the start of the company also lived together. Um, so I was the first person that was basically a brought in from the other side of the country, but also not known to all of them. Um, so the biggest thing was essentially what my, my part of essentially part of my interview was going to the office and kind of looking at it and the, the main owner of the company turning to me and going help <laughs> because everything was everywhere. Um, since they, you know, since they had been operating it kind of, uh, you know, as a, as a for fun thing, there wasn't much like organization, there weren't SKUs, there weren't, you know, all of these things that you need to kind of make an organized process. Um, and so the biggest first step that we did was a cleaning out the office, um, basically making sure that all the t-shirts were in the same area, all the pins were in the same area, trying to consolidate everything, catching up on any backlog, um, talking to the, the person that they had doing orders and figuring out, you know, okay, what is, what is your process? What are the issues that you've been encountering? And then how do we go through and, and fix it and make your job easier and make you more effective? Um, and then from there, it was basically just building everything from the ground up. Like, uh, you know, okay, well, it's not, it's not three friends in, in an office anymore. It's here are the office hours here, you know, here's the scheduled breaks and, you know, here's all the things that you don't really think about because maybe you've just always done them. But if you're starting something from scratch and you're all friends, you never really implement it. So it, those were, those are some of the first things that we kind of had to change is like having an actual structure around how things were done. As someone that is like, let's say fine uh, is a founder of a company and they hire a general manager or hire an operator to come in and pretty much put everything in order and run the business or run a big part of the operations of the business. What do you find is the best way for this founder to work with a, a I guess an operator or a general manager that they've hired? Um, I would say the first step is kind of figuring out what the owner's background is. Um, the interesting thing I found, because I, like I said, I've worked at small startups and I've also worked at large ones, um, is what what does the owner of the company? What I guess what's their vision? Which sounds kind of like a, a silly thing to ask, but effectively, like what where are they at now? What do they want to see? And then they need to be able to accurately and effectively communicate that to whoever they've hired to do operations, um, because as an operation manager, you can't. You, I would I would highly recommend not going in and just kind of doing things how you think they should be done because I've, I found that a lot of uh, owners and, and such generally, they might not know what they want, but they definitely know what they don't want when they've seen it, and that can kind of cause problems. Um, so I would say once both sides kind of say, okay, well, here, here are the goals that we need to meet. Here's what I want to see. Okay, uh, you know, as an operations manager, I've, I've seen that, but maybe we implement it in a different way. And just making sure that you have that line of communication with whoever you're effectively answering to and that you have the tools that you need to actually implement those things. Um, you know, the, the, there, there's a saying and I can't think of it, but it's basically, you know, you promise what you think you can do and try to over deliver. 
Um, but you need to make sure that you're both on the same page when you do that. So you're not going back and trying to, uh, retroactively fix something or, you know, do something because the owner didn't agree with how it was done. Mm, okay. Makes sense. Now, something you mentioned earlier on in the episode was about how the more popular items typically or tend to be the more recent items, the new items that you put out or maybe a new uh, show or game that comes out and now there's a lot of popularity around it. Now, how do you prepare for, prepare, I guess, inventory for something like this or prepare the product development for something like this when it, it has to be so timely? Um, it really depends on the client. Uh, in some cases, we're lucky enough that the client has a, a lot of advance notice that they're creating a game. Um, you'll see that a lot more with uh, games that are not effectively, games or shows that are not driven by a very small team. Um, so the first step is basically getting all of the, the asset art and all of the, the information that's not necessarily available to the public um, together and kind of figuring out, okay, well, this is, as people who are passionate about whatever item or whatever IP we're creating items for, what do we want to see? Because we don't ever pick up a license or create any merchandise for something that we don't care about. Um, you, you can't you can't make good, effective merch that people actually want to see if you would not wear it or see it or buy it yourself. Um so we basically go through and say, okay, well, this here's a list of all of the things that we want to see. If we were a fan of the game not involved in this process, this is what we want to see out in the world. Um, and then we obviously pass it back to the client and kind of pare down things from there. Um, and then depending on who the client is and what the item uh, or what the IP is, we can basically say, okay, well, since this is an anime, we know that these four items are going to be the best sellers based on this prior data that we have from sales reports, um, and that's what we focus our stuff on. And then we basically have tiers, so we have the the quick instant kind of instant gratification items that we go through, and they have a low uh, low price to to kind of make them. They have a, a low turnaround time for like approvals because it's usually the client can just say yes, make that, no, make that change, make it more blue whatever the case may be. Um, and then they also have uh, a really quick turnaround uh, time for actual manufacturing and importing. Um, and then we try to get those items out there as fast as possible and then use that money that we get to basically fund the larger items that have a slower turnaround time and kind of feed feed the smaller items uh, or feed the money that we gain from the smaller items into the development of the bigger items. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned the the word uh, clients. So usually when we when I uh, hear from entrepreneurs that have these licensing deals that work with uh, brands to to essentially license their product to create merchandise around it, uh, they it, the relationship I guess is just kind of very one way, right? They they purchase the license and they go run off and do it. But it sounds like it's more of a two way street and more collaborative with the type of business that you're running. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, so uh, a good example would be um, Dragon Age, which is one of our properties. Um, it's a game that basically everyone in the office has played. Um, we, I would say, as a company, we're lucky enough to have such a great crew of people who are passionate about the products that we um, can can make items that the, the team that created the game will say yes to, which obviously makes it easier, but also... <laughs> If I could, if I could give like one piece of advice or like one one piece of guidance for people is to really get to know your clients and not just the biz dev person that you talk to, because oftentimes the biz dev person uh, might not be as as into everything. They might not be the person that writes the fan fiction or does the art or does, you know, any of those things that are are really important for creating good items. So getting to know other people on the team um, is so it's so helpful and so important in ways that I. I 
didn't really think about until we actually started talking to them. Um, I actually went up to go visit one of the clients um, in Canada a couple months ago. And because I had that background with, you know, people like the writers and the artists and stuff, they were able to show specific things that they knew that I would be interested in to create better merch for their IP. So having that connection with them just improves everything so much. Mm. Now, what's the process like if you do know a game or show is coming out and you guys want to work with them? Are there are you like how do you approach these clients, approach these producers, and are you competing against other, I guess, merchandisers? Yes. Well, okay. So first off, yes, we are competing against other merchandisers. Um, there's, uh, there's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure about the number. There's quite a few different companies out there and everyone tends to do different things. It's interesting though, because we're technically competing against uh, the other people who do what we do with the license designs, but then we're also competing with Redbubble, um, where literally anybody can say, I want to make a design of Barney the Dinosaur, I'm going to put it on a t-shirt, and Redbubble will print one-offs that other people can buy. There's no licensing agreement, there's no oversight, there's nothing but, I I drew this in MS Paint, and now it's on a t-shirt, and people can buy it, and I get money. Mm. So, it's it's very interesting, because that's a it's a great business model, obviously, for Redbubble, but it's interesting for us, because, you know, obviously that stuff's not licensed, and it kind of does directly affect us, so it's how do we, you know we have to stay ahead of that and kind of make sure that we're monitoring that and seeing kind of what works and what doesn't. Um, but also, you know, seeing what else, uh, our other competition is doing. So the people who actually go through and get the licenses and do all of that as well. Um, as far as the process for getting new clients goes, it really varies. Um, I was lucky enough to be, honestly a, a giant nerd who went to these conventions to begin with. Um, my mom took me to my first convention when I was like 16. Uh, and it just kind of, I've, I've always gone to them. So I've always kind of felt comfortable just walking up to people and starting a conversation. And I've always been kind of an outgoing person. So it's very easy for me to kind of adapt. So when I go to a, a convention and I see a game that I'm like, Oh, Hey, I've heard about this. I've seen it on Reddit. I've seen it on Twitter, whatever the case may be. Um, it's, Ga uh, conventions in general, gaming conventions especially, make it so easy for you to A, play the game. You might have to wait in a line, but it, it's they bring the game and they demo it, but they also bring the team who developed it. And you can just mm -hmm. have these wonderful, amazing conversations with these people who, like, it's effectively their child. Like, they they have worked on this thing for years and years and years, and if you show, like, a genuine interest in it and, you know, know what you're talking about. And it's not just like, Hey, I want to stick a logo on a shirt. Can you, can we do that? If you show actual genuine interest and, and passion for their product, um, it's, it's honestly a lot easier to kind of get that conversation started and say, Hey, you know, I really like the game. I really like what you're doing. Um, I would love to make X, Y, Z for you. Uh, is there someone that I can talk to who would handle that sort of talk? You know, can we follow up after the convention? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So when you when you find a client that you want to work with, what what do you find that they typically look for in a in a partner like you guys? Uh, everyone's different. It's actually I I kind of thought it would be a lot more uniform and it'd be a lot easier, but everyone's different. You have uh, clients who want to have you basically put together an entire business proposal and project like, okay, if you're going to make socks, how many socks do you think you're going to make in the two years of this license agreement? How much are you going to sell those socks for? How much are those socks going to cost? How much are you going to, you know, all, all of these things that, if, especially if it's a new product, like something you haven't delved into, they want all that information up front. They want to know how many you're expecting to sell in month one through three. How many do you expect to sell in two quarters? You know, and you just kind of have to 
guess and, and hope for the best. Um, in other cases, clients are so happy to be approached that they basically will just say, do whatever you want to see out there and we'll just kind of give approvals and we're just honestly stoked that you want to work with us because a lot mm-hmm. of indie companies go in and, and want to make a game and they don't even think about merchandise until someone at a convention plays it and says, hey, I want to buy a t-shirt and they go, oh. <laughs> and there's that kind of moment of realization where they're like, oh, well, we don't have any t-shirts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Getting that started is is obviously really easy because half the time they're looking for someone to do merchandise because any anytime they're doing a thing like a game or a TV show, that's what they do. Merchandise is usually a whole other subsection that they either outsource or uh, will generally just like go to a t-shirt printing site and stick their logo on a shirt and call it good because that's all they have the ability to do. Um, which obviously isn't a bad thing because obviously th- their job is to make games or make the anime or do whatever is is in their realm, and merchandise often falls way far out of that. Yeah, and it, it seems uh, I'm gonna I guess assume or guess that there are like some licensors that are very happy to work with anybody and everybody, and then the ones that are much more, I guess, uh, conservative and restrictive with who they work with. Now, do you ever uh, you know start approaching a I guess potential client, and then decide that maybe it's not a good client to to work with because of I guess um, whether they are licensing their product out or their their image and their brand out to too many licensees. Um, actually, no. Uh, I will say that if they're a big enough company to be licensing out to multiple licenses, um, generally during the licensing process, when I'm talking to BizDev, we kind of go over, okay, here are all the categories. And categories are things like uh, physical items, so T-shirts, scarves, jewelry, whatever. Um, and then here are you know items like vinyls or CDs or you know just any anything you can think of. And what we do is we kind of go through this massive list of everything ever that you could create for an IP and then pare it down and I'll send that over as a proposal. Like, okay, well we want to do plush. We want to do stickers. We want to do lanyards and we want to do a poster. And they'll say, okay, well we already have three vendors that are doing posters, but the other three categories are okay. Uh, So usually if they're big enough to have multiple vendors, they also have someone who's kind of making sure that no one's stepping on anyone else's toes. In, In a typical licensing deal, what are some key terms or key deal terms that, that will, will appear? Um, so the the first thing that you're going to see in any kind of licensing deal is going to be exclusive or non-exclusive. Exclusive means that if I sign an exclusive contract with an IP holder, uh, we have the we have the sole ability to create items. Non-exclusive is going to mean that uh, we are working not with other companies, but in conjunction with other companies. So we might be making plushes at the same time as another company is making t-shirts. Um, usually, if it's a medium-sized IP, it won't be there won't be any overlap. But uh, if it's a if it's a big one, there might be multiple companies making plushes, and then we just coordinate with the IP holder to make sure we're not doing duplicates of anything. Um, another thing that you'll see. Um, Royalties. So uh, royalties are basically every quarter um, we'll go through and say, okay, we've sold X X amount of these items that we've created for you at uh, a royalty rate of X percent. Um, and basically what we do is we send them what's effectively a sales report and say, okay, here's all the things that we've sold. Here's the royalty percentage. And then we wire them the money. Um, another term that you're going to encounter is... Trying to think. Those are honestly the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. 
every every client's going to be different. We have some that have uh, terms on like shipping, and we have some that uh, will only allow us to sell in certain um, countries. So the licensing deal might include the whole world, or we might have to exclude certain countries. Um, basically, where where you can sell is a big thing that you'll find, especially. Um, with any client that's outside of the U.S., you generally can't sell those items in the country that the IP is is kind of held. So, like, if a if a person in England is making a game and we sign a contract with them, ninety five percent of the time we aren't going to be able to sell in that country um, because they already have someone who's doing it locally. Mm. And then those people generally don't sell worldwide. So, usually these are geographic too. These these deals. Yes. Yeah. Um, usually the, the easiest way to do it is honestly worldwide, but some, especially like the bigger ones, um, or small companies owned by larger ones might have things that, you know, you can only sell in these countries. Um, in some cases, uh, some of the clients will ask us not to sell in certain small countries because the actual process of dealing with shipping to, uh, like let's say um, Singapore, I think is one of them that that I have a friend who lives there, and she can just never get anything. She has to use a mail forwarding service, and so sometimes clients will ask you not to sell in those countries because you spend so much time time trying to make sure that they get their items. It, I've only ever seen that once in in terms of licensing contracts that that people have asked for. Uh, I've only seen that ever happen once, but it it is something that is talked about, especially when discussing worldwide. And okay, how are you going to handle if you send something to a person and they never get it? How does that affect the IP holders' bottom line? How does that affect our bottom line? What are the kind of steps that we take? And that's also in the the process. So you mentioned uh, royalties before. Now, are there advantages or disadvantages between a contract that's royalties-based versus, um, I guess, not royalty-based, or do you prefer one or the other? Um, so there's two ways you can go about it. There's, uh, there might be others, but the two general ways that we deal with it is that there are the royalty system where every quarter we just pay them whatever we sell, and then there's the minimum guarantee system. I personally don't like the minimum guarantee system, especially if it's a new client. Um, minimum guarantees are basically where you go to the client and say, I expect that we're going to sell $20,000 worth of product at a rate of you know, X percent uh, X percent royalty rate, essentially. So you are going to make X amount per quarter, and then you pay that before you even start making merchandise. Obviously, you know, in some cases, if it's like a, a huge client, you're like, okay, that's fine. I know I'm going to make more than that. That's totally okay. But if you've got a new client and you kind of don't know how their approvals process is or how responsive they're going to be to new designs or any of that, you could effectively just be throwing money into a pit and hoping that you get it back. Uh, so my my advice is to always go with the, the royalty system. Usually what it means if you if you opt out of the minimum guarantee but do the royalties instead, you often pay a higher royalty percentage. Um, but it's honestly safer in my opinion unless you've worked with them before and know how kind of their approvals process works Mm -hmm. now in your all your experience working on these contracts what would you say is the most ideal licensing contract that you could come up with tell us all the deal terms that you would love to have in every single licensing contract oh my gosh um licensed property so uh basically Everything spelled out. Uh, they give us the logo, the trademark, the artwork, uh, any any information. Things like uh, this character is something that 
someone owned and we brought into the game, but it was never in any other game. And like just the weird like legal things that you come upon, all of that spelled out in advance is such an amazing thing to have. And half the time it doesn't occur to people because they're not familiar with legal terms or any kind of legal paperwork whatsoever. So any of the trademark, any of the logo artwork, uh, anything about any characters that we need to know or any likenesses that we need to have. Um, in an ideal world, having the ability to create anything ever that we wanted to make, whether it's apparel or jewelry or plushes or vinyls or accessories, whatever it is, just having them say, go wild. You can make whatever you want. Um, licensing terms, auto renewal, my favorite thing in the world so you don't have to renegotiate contracts. How, how long do contracts typically last? Uh, they can, it depends. Um, I like to go for a year to two years because usually that's, that's like the peak time. So you'll see that stuff kind of be popular for that amount of time. And then either the, uh, a new show will come out or a new game will come out or, you know, whatever the case may be. But that's like, that's like the sweet spot of when you're going to create stuff, unless it's something that's got a lot of longevity, like, uh, for a T for a TV show, like Battlestar Galactica, you could probably go in and make like old school Battlestar Galactica stuff and it would sell like hotcakes mm -hmm. because conventions weren't as popular back when that was airing you, you obviously had some but you'll have all that the, the older crew who have disposable income and who get that kind of nostalgia bomb and they're like oh my gosh i couldn't own this when i was 18 but i can own it now um so you know having having that is often really nice um so yeah two year two years is kind of where I like to go with uh, licensing terms. Um, auto renewal is always good. Licensed territory, including the whole world is beautiful and just makes me so happy. Um, a royalty percentage that basically I negotiate it differently with every client um, with, you know, indie clients. I like to give them uh, a higher royalty percentage because they technically won't make as much money because they're a little bit smaller. Mm -hmm. So I like to try and make it a better deal for them. Um, as far as like copyright, trademark, legal notices, any weird stuff that they have on their legal team, if they have a legal team, getting that done. Uh, licensor deliverables, things like, you know, we agree to promote the item that you've created for us within X amount of time. Um, at any kind of deliverable, deliverables on either side, just getting sorted out in the actual licensing agreement is great. And then having a full suite of just all of the assets that I could ever hope for, whether it's a copy of the game or backgrounds on the characters, if it's not out already, um, just any of any of the the artistic stuff or character items that we would need to know, all of that basically placed in it's, it's Exhibit A for our contracts. Um, but basically, any of that stuff that we need to know in there on the the day that we sign the license, like. If I got that every time, I would I would cry. I would be so happy. <laughs> now, do you approach the I guess negotiation uh, table asking for all of this, or or how do you figure out what you should I guess start with when you are approaching a a client to to create a licensing deal? Um, I approach everyone differently. Um, if I try to approach an indie client, an indie client being someone who uh, maybe they made a game and it got popular out of nowhere and now they're all over Twitter and they're all over Facebook and people are interviewing them and it, they're just dealing with like the scary, Oh God, I'm popular. What do I do? Um, I approach them differently than I would someone who's kind of corporate. -y. Um, if I'm approaching someone who's an indie company, I, I basically will not even bring the contract into it. I'll go over everything and kind of present like a watered down version and say, Hey, 
we would like to make merch for you. Here's the items we'd like to make. Here's the royalty and, and kind of what you can expect every quarter. Here's the process that we go through for approvals. Here, um, if you can provide me with, you know, any kind of copy work or copyright information you have, great. If not, I'll work together with you and our uh, our lawyer and we'll kind of get all of that stuff together and, and effectively handhold them through it so they're not overwhelmed and go, I don't want to do anything. Um, with a AAA or, you know, with anything that's, huge and you know sold worldwide and and they have like a an actual team they want that they want me to basically spell everything out in the most detailed legalese humanly possible and they want to know every little thing and they want it all provided all at once because they're super busy and they don't have time to kind of go over everything and that's kind of nice in a different way because at least you don't have to worry about explaining things to them and and you know, they already know kind of what they're doing and what they want, and they generally don't deviate from their terms. So game company A is going to have different set terms that they will not deviate from than uh, game company B. What uh, deal terms can end up tripping tripping a a licensee up when working with a licensor to, to create a licensing agreement? I would say the biggest thing that can kind of trip us up would be... Um, any sort of shipping guidelines, those are always a fun thing. Um, a lot of the times, if it's a if it's a huge client, you're going to find that they don't do their own shipping. They have a game company, and then they outsource basically everything else. Um, so having to deal with the game company or the the anime company or you know whoever it might be, the IP holder. Uh, and they'll have their specifications, but the biz dev person that you're talking to might not know what new terms their shipping agency has. And their shipping agency might be working with someone else to do fulfillment through another thing and, uh, you know, their, their importing company. So you end up talking to like 12 different people and, and basically having to kind of go through and, and figure everything out piecemeal, I guess, is the best way to put it. Like, you just kind of have to put everything together and hope for the best. So... Deal terms where it's basically like, we're just going to send you X amount of items. Uh, we're going to send them to this location, and that's it. That is an ideal situation because when you get into importing and, and specifications and requirements, it just it becomes really complicated, especially when you're trying to do fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier. Now, when you are preparing to produce a, a, a merchandise and you're ramping up to, I guess, launch it, how does the, the client work with you to to promote the, the merchandise? Um, everyone's going to be different. Uh, basically, what will happen is it, a lot of the time the marketing team is going to be the same as the approvals team, um, or at least the, the art team will work with the approvals and marketing team, and, and everyone pretty much communicates pretty well. Um, so by the time, let's say I'm making a plush, uh, by the time that plush has hit final approvals and whatever other things that need to happen, um, we've already kind of started working on the, the marketing process and we basically have to send everything over to the client. So here's the, the steps that we want to take for marketing. We're going to post it on Twitter. We're going to post it on Facebook. We're going to post it on Tumblr. We're going to post it on Reddit. Here are the things that we want to post. Here are the pictures that are going to be posted. Here's the exact text that's going to be posted. Here are the times that they're going to be posted. Here is uh, who, and sometimes they want to know who's posting it uh, because they need to be able to reach out. If, if for some reason something happens, they need to be able to reach out to you really fast and say, hey, change this. Hey, take this down. Um, sometimes you'll encounter that, uh, especially at the bigger companies where maybe one side will approve of something, but then 
someone who's associated with the company but doesn't necessarily handle this is like, oh, no, actually, we want to phrase this a different way. And so you have to take everything down. Even though they weren't technically part of the approvals process, um, you'll sometimes encounter that. So just being able to make sure that you have that communication line open and they know who to reach out to is, is super important. Um, once we've kind of cleared everything, uh, we'll post everything. And then generally, we like to have the client kind of retweet it or repost it or basically bolster our audience with their own um, because a lot of the time, it, merch versus the IP holders a little bit different. You're not going to see people who want your autograph for doing a T-shirt, whereas like a writer would get autographs. So you know, you're not going to have like the same kind of viewership or the same followers mm-hmm. or the same passion around it as you would a game company. So having them come through it and kind of promote us makes it a lot easier as well. And and that all, all of those dates and stuff need to be worked out in advance of launching the actual product. Now, do you try to nail all this down during the, I guess, the um, licensing agreement as well? Or is that something you can kind of table until after you're getting through the licensing deal? Uh, usually it's... In the actual licensing agreement, we try to do something like, hey, if we're going, if it's if it's an easy licensing deal and there's not like a bunch of hoops to jump through, it's like, hey, within two weeks of us creating a new item, we'd like that you'd promote us, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really the only time it's debated during the licensing agreement because usually when you're doing the licensing agreement, especially if it's for something that hasn't come out yet, you don't know what you're going to make exactly. You, you kind of have an idea like, okay, well, I know I'm going to make a couple t-shirts and I'm going to probably make uh, a couple pins. I know I'm going to make a couple plushes, um, but you don't really know who the character is going to be or, you know, what, what exactly you're going to be creating at that point in time. Um, so usually that stuff is, is done after you've, gotten final approvals and when the manufacturing is happening because manufacturing usually takes about a week to a month um and that's like the perfect that's the sweet spot of time to kind of go hash out all of that mm-hmm. now you mentioned something to to me in the pre-interview questions which is about cross promotion is that what you're referring to working with your clients yes. to promote gotcha now when you were first starting out when the business was first starting out did you have difficulties getting these, you know, more established companies to prom- cross promote with you? Did you did you find ways around uh, that? I guess that issue when you're just a small company, you're working with a much more, I guess, established brand to to do a cross promotion. Um, not necessarily. Usually, since there's all that paperwork that has to go into actually creating licensed items for them, they have a vested interest in making sure that mm-hmm. you sell things. Um, it, it actually works out very nicely because they want you to do well because it means more money for them. So usually there's not too much of an issue um, with the actual cross promotion. They're usually happy to do it, especially, actually, I'm going to kind of segue here, uh, get to know whoever is doing your social media for the IP. Like, make sure that you're their best friend because it is so much easier to know who is doing their social media and community management and any of that and be able to say, hey, I just submitted this to the marketing team. Heads up, can you push this through? And obviously, that only works if you have a good relationship with them. But getting to know them helps so much and makes everything so much faster. Nice. That's a great tip. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the, the actual develop, product development and the mer- the uh, manufacturing behind all of this. So once the deal term has been signed and you guys are good to go, you have the green light to start producing the merchandise, what are the first steps? Like what needs to be put into motion immediately? Watching it, playing it, basically familiarizing ourselves with what it is. Um, I would say we go about things a little bit differently. Um, we try to stay away from things like a logo on a shirt that, so like if, if the game has a, a 
red R, uh, we don't want to put that on a shirt. Generally, that's going to be taken care of because that's an easy-to-produce item. We want to say, okay, well, we've familiarized yourself with the product. Uh, we've played this game, and there's a character who has a shield that has a very specific insignia, and that character is a fan favorite. We need to put that insignia on something, or we need to put that character on something. Um, basically going in and, and familiarizing ourselves with what the fans want, or even what we want, um, that's pretty much the most important thing because... You can you can make a logo on a shirt, or you can make uh, a thing for a main character. But if that character is not a fan favorite, you're not going to sell as much. And and fandom is kind of weird that way. Where uh, a good example is there is a client who had a video game where you could romance a bunch of people. You had like nine romance options, and half of the people into this game were like, "Why can't you romance this one side character?" I want to, and romancing being like, you can have your fictional character date that other character. There's mm-hmm. a whole subplot behind it. Yes. But why Why can't I date that character? And like, it was never written to the code and no one had any idea that people would be like, oh, no, but I want that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so making sure that we're familiar with the products helps so much because then we can say, oh, everybody likes that character. That's what we're going to make merch for. That's going to be the first thing that we're going to use to establish ourselves. And that's our, our leaping off point is this is what is super popular in fandom right now. And that's what we want to make. Now, do you have like in-house designers that are creating like the, the plushes or the T-shirts or the stickers? Like, what's involved in the, the creative side? Uh, yeah, we we work with freelancers and we have in-house people. Um, you know, I don't actually have an art background, but I've also created items because a lot of it. China is one of the manufacturers, not China is one of the manufacturers, but we use manufacturers in China, and they're often used to kind of someone who necessarily might not have as great art skills as somebody mm-hmm. else. Um, and so it's it's actually pretty easy to, to get things done there. Um, obviously, it helps so much more, and it's so much more time effective if you have an in-house designer. But as, as someone who can reliably draw stick figures, and that's about it, you can still create products as long as you know what you want to create, and you follow whatever terms that manufacturer has for submissions. Now it seems like the the plush uh, plush uh, I guess toys are very popular at least predo- or dominantly predominantly uh, displayed on your site. Uh, so I want to talk a little about about these uh, the, the plush. What are the assets that you need to to give or to get to the manufacturer to create a, a plush toy? It's going to differ actually depending on the manufacturer. We actually work with a, a bunch of different ones. Um, in some cases, we have so like for example, we have a plush that talks. Um, so we need to provide them with uh, a front view, a side view, a back view, a top view, a bottom view, you know, all of that stuff so they can kind of plot it out. Um, but then we also need to provide them with uh, specifications for, okay, well, the voice box needs to contain this type of batteries. It needs to go through these kind of specifications and tests to make sure they're not going to explode. Um, and then we need to actually provide them with the lines from the character. Uh, and that's where you get into kind of interesting things, like if you want something voice acted, uh, you often have to pay fees like for the voice actor to come back and re-record the lines because you can't use the lines from the game or the, the anime or whatever the case may be. Um, and then when they go and re-record that, that's an added expense you're going to have to kind of factor into everything and then making sure that the uh, company that's doing the voice acting actually provides you with a format that China can use and that you can send it over in a way that China won't block. Especially when you're doing manufacturing there, uh, you have to send... The file can't be too large sometimes, and you can't send it like 
certain sites might be blocked. And so kind of mm. navigating around the, the interesting things that, that China might have blocked is, is always kind of an adventure. <laughs> yeah, that, I never thought about that as an issue, but, but it makes a lot of sense now that you explain it. Um, so another thing that you mentioned in the pre-interview uh, questionnaire was about how you should never skip steps when creating your business. Make sure that you have everything in line properly and create the infrastructure that you know you're going to need going forward and don't you know wait until a later time just because it's not important right now so talk a little, little about about a little bit about this like what kind of systems or infrastructure did you feel like the company needed to to create once you stepped into your role i think my situation is probably gonna be different than a lot of people's but uh we're a super small company, so there's there's no HR team. HR is basically me. Biz dev is me. You know, all all of these other things kind of funnel into me. And since they had only ever hired friends before me, there is no HR department. Um, so making sure that you are familiar with the hiring processes, what paperwork you need to file, all of all of these things that you don't really think about when you're creating a business with friends. All of that stuff is going to come into play as soon as you start expanding and growing and quote unquote becoming a real company. Um, things like the licensing deals. Uh, licensing deals are going to change over time, especially when you look at like your first license. If, if I looked at our first licensing deal and then I compared it to the one five years from then, aka now, uh, it's completely different. Like there, there are so many like little things that I've learned to include, and then basically go over to the lawyer and say, hey, you know, I want to include this. Is this actually legally feasible? Um, and then making sure that's implemented in all further deals. Um, but basically not leaving anything for later. So if I notice that license, my, my default licensing contract needs to have a thing where the client promises to promote us within two weeks, that gets added right away. Like that's not something I, oh, I'll just, I'll add it when we approach a new client. I'm not going to remember that. There's just, I've got so much else on my plate that it needs to be done right away. Um, same with, you know, HR stuff. Okay. Well, I, I know that we're moving from Boston to Seattle. What's different? What uh, hiring changes do I need to make? The minimum wage is going to be different. If I go over uh, a certain amount of employees, at what point do I need to change things? If I get insurance for the entire company, I can't just say, you know, oh, well, I'm going to get insurance for everyone and we'll figure it out later. I need to figure out, okay, what, what rates are we going to provide? What, uh, how much are people going to pay out of their paycheck? How much is the company going to pay? And like factoring all of that into your budget before you just kind of do it. it I feel like it's a thing that most people would be like, oh, I do that already. But in some cases, it's never done. So uh, making sure that you kind of plan for all of those things and get them done as soon as you come upon them helps so much and will save you so much trouble. Mm, makes sense. Now, when you are approaching, I guess, building this kind of infrastructure or system, do you guys, how do you document all this? How do you keep track of all of the, the infrastructure that, that you want to create? I would say, we start, well, we started off using Google Docs uh, because that was kind of the, the easiest system. Um, and the best way that I could think of to go about it was essentially building the skeleton. So in Google Drive, I know from experience that I'm going to need folders for clients. In those folders for clients, I know I'm going to need art assets. I'm going to need copyright information. I'm going to need our licensing agreements. I'm going to need contact information for whoever I'm talking to. Uh, I'm going to need a place to dump all the emails and correspondence that we have. And I'm also going to need, you know, things like uh, a folder for any concepts we have and a folder for first, second, third approvals. Basically, building all of that out in uh, Google Drive or your uh, 
whatever server you use or whatever whatever equivalent there is, making sure that you have that that structure in place right to begin with, and then making sure that you file everything when you get it. Um, that's the biggest step because then you can go through and say, okay, well, I know in my HR folder I have all of my employees' uh, information, so their you know hiring information, the dates they were hired, the NDAs they've signed, the other special NDAs they've signed for specific things they've done, all of this random stuff, and then you kind of build around that. So when I do my hiring process, I now know I'm going to have to do this for minimum wage. I know I'm going to have to do this for the insurance. And I have all of that stuff kind of readily on hand, and I know exactly where it's at in the folder. So when I have to pull it, it's just a matter of you know, yanking it out and then uh, having a, a single um, document that basically says, okay, for new hires, here's the hiring process and here's all the things I need to do. Here's the uh, ramp up, here's the orientation process, all of that. For item creation, here are the 97 steps that we go through and here's everything we need to know. For for everything that we do, I, I basically try to make a process around it. Here are the steps that we do, and here's the process that goes behind it, and here's the reasoning behind it, and that is what we have to follow. So if you're going into a company that doesn't have this to begin with, it can be a little bit of a a tough pill to swallow, because if you're used to kind of just doing things haphazardly and someone comes in and says, nope, but we're going to do structure, uh, it can be a little hard for people to adjust to. Um, so kind of starting small and then building your way up and, and kind of building around, that's the best way to do it. Just so people aren't instantly overwhelmed with corporateness. Mm, makes sense. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. So sanshe.com again is the website, S A N S H E E.com. Where do you personally want to see the business be this, this time next year? What are the main goals that, that you as a company want to focus on? I, oh gosh, there's actually a lot. Um, I want to explore things like uh, books. Um, I have a lot of, I'm a voracious reader. So having physical items for the books I like, Game of Thrones is a perfect example. Uh, Obviously there's a TV show now, so merchandising is a lot easier. But, you know, these these books that I've grown up on that are super popular, but merchandising is so hard because you don't have a a tangible thing, or I'm sorry, a, a thing to look at. Um, so creating items around that is always very interesting, and I would love to explore that and kind of work with the people that I respected as a child or as a teenager and work with them to kind of create their vision in physical form. That's something I'm really passionate about. Uh, same with TV shows. I'd love to get more into that. We've, we've kind of started doing that, but getting more into TV shows and creating items there. Um, and honestly, I would I would love to see us with a fulfillment center that's not in our office. Um, having the fulfillment center in the office is great right now, but I would love to see us get to a point where we can we have so much stuff that we have an outside fulfillment center. That's that's where I'd like to see us go. Nice, awesome. So excited to see where you guys take the business next. Thank you again so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. Telling that story really helps resonate with my audience because a lot of my audience are also young moms who, you know, might have a small hobby business. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.